series called Aerobics, okay? And it's been a lot of fun looking at the different ways that people ran and where running is mentioned in the Bible. Paul talks about running, and he makes it very obvious that he was an athletic person or an athletic fan. Some of the people are running from something. Some of the people are running to something. And some people are just running for a purpose, okay? And today we have a familiar story to probably all of us. And that familiar story is about Joseph, all right? And I call the message, Run from the Boss's Wife. And if you know the story of Joseph, and I think most of you do, there's a lot of things that happened to him. A lot of injustices came into his life. These things were completely out of his control. Many of you, this could be your story perhaps. Maybe not the sexual uh, part of it, but it may be just the temptation part of it. You ask yourself, how did I end up in the position that I am in my life? This story happens to be about sexuality. Potiphar's wife was very sensual, and she wanted to sleep with Joseph. And Joseph is resisting that temptation. And if sexual temptation is not what could lure you, what's at the top of that list for you? Potiphar's wife doesn't have a name in the Bible. You can name her anything you want. You may want to name her greed. You may want to name her jealousy. You may want to name her insecurity. There's any number of names that you could name her, but there's always something that Satan does to you to put a hook into your jaw and pull you away from your purpose in life. Joseph is his father's favorite son. I don't understand that because I don't have any favorite child. My daughter Taylor says I do. Where is she? She must be taking care of the kids. Okay. But I don't. I love all my kids the same. I may love them in different ways because of their personalities, but I don't have any favorites, all right? You know, God loves all of us equally. I don't think God has any real favorites. But there are some people that lived under the blessing of God, continuing their lives. They just had favor of the Lord, okay? Joseph was one of those guys for portions of his life. David was one. Nehemiah was another one. But Joseph grows up in the home of a very large family. And he starts having these dreams. And when he's a young teenager, he shares those dreams with his older brothers. And his brothers just think he's an egomaniac. He's the spoiled youngest son. The dreams show Joseph as the leader of all of them. And the brothers are furious with him because he got the coat of many colors. They saw him coming one day, and they decided they would trap him, throw him down in a pit, and they sell him into slavery to Egypt. He's probably anywhere between 13 and 17 years old, and a guy by the name of Potiphar buys him. Potiphar works directly with the Pharaoh of Egypt. He's wealthy, he's one of the leaders of the warriors, and he has a wife that is very, very seductive. Verse 1 of chapter 39 in Genesis. Joseph moved into Potiphar's house. Now, I'm going, to, I'm going a little quick. My notes are messed up. I'm sorry. I'll get back on track. 
Joseph moved into the Potiphar's house somewhere around 17 years old. And by the time he was 33, he was named the Grand Vizier of all of Egypt. That mean, meant he was second in command, only followed by the Pharaoh. He moved into Pharaoh's house. The situation with Potiphar's wife happened somewhere in that 16 years prior to moving in to the house of Pharaoh. Bible scholars don't know how long he served his time in prison. Most believe that he served in the house of Potiphar for three years, then spent 10 years in prison for something that he did not do. Joseph lived until he was 110 years old, and he had an amazing long life. Joseph lives with blessing, number one. Now Joseph had been taken, I'm starting with verse 1 now. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian, who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of all of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care with Joseph being in charge, and he did not concern himself with anything except the food that he ate. You're taken to a huge home. You're suddenly put in command of that home. You're the overseer of the entire estate, and that is what Christianity is all about, right? Prosper, 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 right? Health, money, Never any problem. Uh-huh. Hang on. Joseph has problems. Christianity is filled with its challenges. Yes? I don't have any. Most of you don't have those same things that I do. Number two. Joseph is attractive. Verse 6, it says, Now Joseph was well-built and handsome. Could have been you, Jim. It's very rare in Hebrew Scripture that physical traits are talked about. If the Bible says that you're gorgeous and you have a great body, it's like, wow, okay? But attraction's personal. Every one of us in here have a different idea of what beauty or what handsomeness is. We, we just all have different things. But Potiphar's wife was attracted to Joseph, and it wasn't just attraction, it was lust. It was controlling, empowered lust. Potiphar's wife, one Bible, describe, Bible scholar describes her as the first sensualist in all of the scriptural women. The sins committed by women up to that point in Scripture had to do with the dynasty of a bloodline or customs of the bloodline, but there was never really an immoral story up to this point concerning a woman. She had lust for Joseph. She was spoiled, rich, and beautiful. She was the product of a luxurious, licentious civilization. Potiphar's wife is accustomed to getting everything that she wants. And now, number three, 
Joseph faces temptation. And this is the message, the heart of the message, the soul of the message that I want to talk to you about today. Is it a sin to be tempted? No. Everyone is tempted. Jesus was tempted. What matters is what we do with the temptation, how we handle the temptation, what we believe about the temptation, what we think about it. I've got five things today that I want to give you that's going to help you whenever you're tempted. Number one, expect it. It's going to come. Every day expect something to come your way that will try to spin you out of bounds, trip you up, cause you to stumble. And when we buy into it, it separates us from our God. I remember one temptation. It was the goofiest thing that I'd ever had in my life. I'm at the Ace Hardware store, and and I'm standing there in line, and there's only one other person in the store. And when the person in front of me leaves, I'm the last person there. The person at the counter says, excuse me, I've got to run. I don't know where they went, but they were gone. And they were gone for a long, long time. But suddenly, my focus became toward a box of screwdrivers sitting beside the cashier stand. And if you look in my toolbox at home, don't ask me why I've got a toolbox. I don't know how to use them, but I do. I've got a bunch of them. And I've got a whole drawer of every kind of screwdriver that you can imagine. But I'm standing there, and there's nobody there to see me. I looked around. But I suddenly realized I needed that yellow-handled $2 screwdriver. And I could have it, and I could walk out the door, and nobody would know. I fiddled with it a little while. And actually, the thought went through my mind, this is the stupidest thing that I've ever wanted to do. But I'm telling you what, Satan was turning the screws. Scott, you really need that screwdriver. You remember that fence you need to fix? Well, I've got 800 screwdrivers. But I couldn't get my mind off of it. All of a sudden, something I didn't need became a real temptation to me. And i not sure, I guess, my spirituality overwhelmed me. And I said, Scott, lay down everything you're going to buy and walk out of this store. Because obviously the atmosphere is possessed. I'll tell you about another temptation that was that came to me in just a moment. Verse 7, after a while his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. She took notice of it. The Hebrew word meant that she undressed him with her eyes. She was aggressive. She invited him to come and lie with her. And Joseph knew pretty quickly that he needed to escape from this. And I wish all temptations were that obvious, okay? It would make things a whole lot easier. Most sexual sin has nothing to do with just in-your-face obvious. 
When people fall into that trap, it's mostly about learning to care for somebody else. Becoming emotionally attached with them. It has a lot to do with someone treating you better than the person who's supposed to be treating you better does. They seem to understand you more, and suddenly there's a connection. Satan uses this trick over and over again to mess up the rest of your life. Number two, use logic. Use the what ifs. What happens if I do this? What are the consequences if I go through all of this? What are the ramifications? And Joseph did this right away. I commend him. Verse 8, but he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing against God? You may say, you know, if he was such a great man of God, why didn't he just say no? I'm not going to do it. But what he did is he used logic. He knows her. He's seen her in action. He knows he better not offend her. And he knows if she feels personal rejection from him, she is very capable of retaliation against him. He's trying to be really wise here, and he is. You're a beautiful lady. You must understand what I've been given, and I can't go down that road. That's just logic. It's a logical response. In Bible college, one of my professors in one of the theological classes they ask us to write down a sin that a minister could fall from. And we all wrote something down. He cut them in strips, put them inside of a jar, and had us all pull one out. And the assignment was, you're to write a letter of resignation to a fictitious congregation, and you're also to write a letter to the family and the friends and the congregation that you've injured and you're hurt over that sin that would cause you to fall. And I don't know whether to call this a temptation or not, but I... Back after Dana and I first got married, we took a vacation with another couple. And we were in adjoining rooms. You know, you had the door in between the rooms. They used to do that where you can open up and go back and forth, whatever. I was still lying in bed one morning. My wife had gone to pick up our children because they were staying with their grandparents, our child at that time. And I got a knock on the door, and I thought it was my friend. I said, come on in. And it was his wife. She came in with this negligee. And she began to offer herself to me. I didn't think about Joseph. Didn't think about anything. All I could think about was my wife. I won't go through the whole story. But when she was offering herself, when she was finished, I said her name. And I said, 
I hope you know that I'm extremely happily married. And I could never do anything to endanger that. And I knew if I scorned her, if I knew, I knew that if I embarrassed her or belittled her, that I could be in trouble. So I simply left it at that. She turned and walked away. I wept. My wife came back to our hotel room, and I told her what happened. And she goes, you have to tell your friend now, don't you? I said, I can't do that. And she said, you have to. And she was right. One of the hardest things that I've ever done, I was trying to pack my stuff and get out of there as quick as I can. We'd planned to go eat lunch together with this couple and all that. Well, I was throwing every stuff in the car. I wanted to get out of there before my friend came home. But Dana saw him first and told him that I had something to tell him. So he met me at the car and said, Dana said you had something to tell him. And I froze. And he said, friend, I've got something to tell you that's going to rock your world. And I told him that what had happened. And I said, we've got to go now. And he, he, he was just ashen white. Didn't know what to say. So we drove away, went back to our home. With Didn't know what was going on back there. But I got a call that afternoon from my friend. And he said, Scott. He said, I'm hurt deeper than I've ever been hurt before. But he said, Scott, you were a real friend to me. Because you may have headed off something that could have destroyed my life. He was a minister friend. Broke my heart. He's still my friend. Probably be wanting to know what happened to them now. But if we would ju look, look just one step beyond, okay, see what it would be like or think about what it would be like, perhaps that logic would prevent a major hurt to many people and to yourself. There's a New Testament scripture in Luke 12 and 3 that says, What is done in private shall be shouted from the rooftops. You may be thinking you're getting away by caving into temptation continually. And every time you do that thing that is embarrassing to you that you would never let anybody know, you go and you ask God to forgive you. And He does. He's faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sin and unrighteousness, right? He does that. But there comes a time that God takes his hands off of it and he lets Satan reach his hand in and pull back the ugly curtain. And Satan doesn't mind embarrassing you. Number three, recognize it is sin. You know, not all things that seem wrong lead to sin. You can be angry. You know, that seems like it's bad, but it's not always angry. Scripture says, be angry and sin not. 
You can have confrontation. You can even have arguments, and it's not a sin. For Joseph, if he would have gone and acted on this sin, it would have been adultery and fornication. As a slave, it was unlawful for Joseph to have a wife. He's around 17 years old and being faced with this temptation. In verse 8, how then could I do such a wicked thing against God? He knows this is a sin. He knows it's a sin against Potiphar, but he also knows it's a sin against God, and he just calls it what it is. And I'm going to stop there for just a second and meddle. Do you know I have had people call me in my office at the church, and they're upset with me because I use the term sin. Can you imagine that? They're upset because I use the word sin. They say, that's such an ugly word. I say, well, yeah. (laughs) Just offensive, they say. That's not an offensive word. It's the truth. Sin will destroy your life. It will take away your future. It will trap you. It will put a hook in your mouth and pull you away from everything that God intended you to run for. What happened to Adam and Eve in the garden? They felt shame. They were naked and ashamed, and they tried to hide from God. Just the opposite thing you should do when you find yourself entangled in a mess of sin. What you have to do with that is confess that sin and run to God. Vulnerability to God is the only way out of your sin. You can't handle it. As I quote the great Jack Nicholson. Number four, try to avoid places of temptation. And when I say places, I'm not necessarily saying places like bars or some houses or places you go. That could be true too. But more I'm thinking about emotional places. When is it that you're tempted? Verse 10, and though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. Joseph even refused to go around her. He couldn't leave his job. He's a slave. He had to be in the house, and I would imagine he'd walk into a room and look and see she's there, and he'd turn around and walk out. He probably tried to do all of his work on the opposite side of the house where he knew she was. He was doing everything that he could to stay away from her. But what can I do when I know there are places where I know I'm weak? Number five, be ready to run. Verse 11, one day he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me, but he left the cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. She's grabbing at him, grabbed the back of his coat, and I can imagine that he kind of just slipped out of one side and slipped out of the other and left her standing there holding the cloak. 
last verse I just read to you, that's what qualified this scripture for being a part of this series. He ran out of the house. Be ready to run. I wish I had a part six to this sermon, and it would be this. Take your cloak with you. But isn't that just like Satan to put you in situations that are out of your control that you don't even want to be in? It happens. And number five, Joseph is falsely accused. And I don't like this part of the story. Verse 13, when she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. And when he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him the story. That Hebrew slave you brought to us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, This is how your slave treated me. And he burned with anger. And I'm going to stop here, okay? I think he knew she was lying. All he said was, he has earned or burned within him. It didn't say it was at, at, at Joseph. didn't say it was with his wife either. But I'm kind of wondering if he knew. He knew about it and he was angry and all he could do to help save his wife's safe face was have him put in prison. Verse 20, Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. Her priorities are revealed here. She demeans Joseph by calling him a Hebrew slave. Then she belittles her husband by blaming him for the entire situation. I like the story better when he was prosperous. Now he's falsely accused and he's in prison. And I think injustice is one of those things that causes a major grievance in my emotional spirit. Have you ever had someone say something about you that was not true and there's no way to fix it? Joseph had no recourse to Potiphar's wife and her lie. It's not fair. That's why I tell people, there's a county fair, there's a state fair, and they used to have a world's fair, but life's not fair. Do you remember when Joseph was in the pit? Was God with him? The Bible says he was. Was God with him in Potiphar's house? The Bible says he was. And number five. The Lord is with us even in the prison. Your prison, my prison, whatever prison it is, 
the Lord's with us, even in the prison. Verse 20, but while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him, and he showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. Well, thank you, Lord. The Lord likes me. He's going to be with me in prison for 10 years. How do you deal with that for something you didn't do? But God was there. He was. Is God there in the middle of whatever it is that you're facing, your trial, your injustice, your pain? He's there. The deal is, and I'm so uncomfortable with this because it's injustice. He's not supposed to be there. And it bugs me that in that 10 years, Joseph didn't see the picture that God was painting for the rest of his life. And you don't see the picture that God is painting for the rest of your life either. Stuck. Joseph starts interpreting dreams. He blows the warden away with his ability. And the word gets out. And by the way, I'm going to interrupt our series next week because God is dealing my heart all day long. I had a dream last night that I believe was prophetic. And in my heart, God let me know that he has given the same dream to other people. And it's a clarion call, a warning to God's people of what's coming in our future. So I'm going to take a break next week. I feel like I'm supposed to. And talk to you about this dream. God's given me a, an ability to interpret dreams. And I don't say that bragging. But there's not a lot of people that do that. And I say it. You may have a dream. And it may be from God. If you want to share it, God could give me, give me the meaning to your dream. Sometimes we have dreams that's just bad dreams. You know, the night before. And that's true. That's just honesty about it. But I just want you to be praying with me about this. It was the most real dream I think I've ever had in my life. And it was full of imagery. I'll just tell you my story. But Joseph starts interpreting these dreams, and he blows the warden away with his ability, and the word gets out. Guess who has trouble with the dreams that he's been having? The Pharaoh, the big kahuna. Pharaoh calls for Joseph because he's heard about his ability. And Joseph interprets the Pharaoh's dreams correctly. And Pharaoh calls Joseph into his house and makes him the grand vizier over all of Egypt. Second in command. I could hear Potiphar going home. Honey, I'm home. You remember that kid that you say raped you? 
You're such an awful nasty man. Well, that awful nasty man is now my boss. And so what's the next thing that Joseph does? He sends her to the gallows and he has her hung and forever to be forgotten about. Not really. <laughs> that would be me. <laughs> that might be you, okay? There's nothing ever mentioned of Joseph seeking retaliation against Potiphar or his wife. And I think it's like this. Joseph had a lot of wisdom, okay? He may have not used it a lot when he was a young kid, but he's older, he's more mature now. He's had a lot of time to be alone with God in the prison. And he says to himself, I don't want to pull those things out of the iron trap that God's hewn because those things will destroy me. I'll leave that up to God. Looking forward, not looking backward. He doesn't going to allow God to do all that vengeful stuff. In 1 Peter 3.17, the scripture says, For it is better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Would you stand? All right. Just close your eyes for a second, okay? And I'll tell you this up front. I'm not going to ask you what your temptation is. That's not my business. If you ever want to share it with me, it's up to you. I had a guy down in Dallas come up to me one time, just blew me away. <laughs> He's mid-40s. He said, you understand, you handle that. You'd never know who he was, so I'd use his name. He said, understand, I've got a horrible problem. I cannot quit smoking pot. He's got three kids, teenagers, or friends with mine. Never would have dreamed it. Nobody needs to know your temptation unless you truly want to share it sometime so that I know how to pray. But if you're dealing with the temptation you haven't been consumed by it yet. You've not fallen. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I want God to speak into your heart. And these are the words that I believe God is speaking into your heart right now. He said, I'm standing beside you. I'm with you. You have tools now to escape the temptation. And I'm going to help you. Avoid the places, physical and emotional. Expect it to come, but get ready to run. Get ready to run. And if you've already dabbled in the sin, it's time to put it behind you. Get it behind you. Sin's not an offensive word. Like I said earlier, it's just truth. Nobody's mad at you when you've sinned. God's not even mad at you. He's just saying, let's get it right. I'll cover it up. I'll forget it from now on. You cast those sins as far as the east is from the west. They never touch. If you're dealing with sin, 
and something's about to overcome you, what I'm going to do is I'm going to count to three. And when I count to three, get to that third number. I, I, I don't want anybody to hesitate if you're wrestling. My goodness, we've all wrestled. But I want you to slip your hand because we want to pray for you. All right? Ready for the countdown. All right? One. Get ready. Don't hesitate if you're battling. Two. And then finally the last one. And don't let anything hold you back. If you need to raise your hand and get prayer. Three. Raise your hand. Thank you, thank you, thank you. 